Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Race podcast, where we try to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies or die trying. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Belated Happy New Year's, everyone. Hope you're all doing well out there and coming along with your death races and avoiding the con. Uh, as of recording this episode, we've got some precursor award nominees announced with the SAG Award nominees coming out this morning and throwing off all of the acting races, as well as the BAFTA long list. Oh, and I guess the Golden Globes happened, but we're not going to acknowledge them right now. Uh, so for the first, for the next three weeks here on the Oscars Death Race podcast, we'll be doing episodes, each looking at four different films that, according to Gold Derby, are the most likely to be nominated for Best Picture. Given that Best Picture nominations usually come with at least a couple of nominations in other categories, this would be a good way to go, a part of the way to getting a head start on the Death Race. Uh, to figure out which of those 12 nominees are who those are, I'm going, to, I'm going off of the odds put forth by the community at goldderby.com. As of the recording of this episode, those 12 films are in order from 1 to 12, The Power of the Dog, Belfast, West Side Story, Dune, Licorice Pizza, King Richard, Coda, Don't Look Up, Tick Tick Boom, Nightmare Alley as the top 10, and then A Tragedy of Macbeth and Drive My Car as filler 11th and 12th spots who could potentially spoil one of the lower ranked films. Now, to make it a little bit easier to track, for these three episodes, I'm going to do a little theme for each one. Uh, this week, we're going to be have, talking about shows available on Netflix, uh, next week being so-called genre films, and then the week after that being films about coming of age. Uh, to help me out, I'll be having on some guests to talk about the films, especially for a couple of those where, due to the, the pandemic, I haven't had a chance to go out to the movie to catch some of those at my local theater, um, but my guests have been able to. Now, no worries. Uh, about that this week, though, because we're going to be doing films that should be easily available to watch because they're on Netflix, at least here in the United States. Now, I actually had initially planned this episode to be more broadly about films available on streaming with The Power of the Dog, Don't Look Up, Tick, Tick, Boom being available on Netflix, and then Being the Ricardos on Amazon Prime. At the time, it was ranked number 12. However, since then, it's dropped down the rankings and Lost Daughter, another Netflix film, briefly came into the number 12 spot on the rankings. However, since then again, uh, as we noted just now, Drive My Car has risen to the 12th spot, pushing my, the Lost Daughter down. But, you know, that was kind of the day we were recording this episode. Uh, so we went ahead and talked about Lost Daughter anyway, um, since, one, I haven't had a chance to see Drive My Car yet, and, Lost Daughter, and two, Lost Daughter still fit the theme. Now, when we say we, I am, of course, talking about my guest this episode, Alex Nadell from the Academy of Death Racers. You've heard me mention it before, but there is an online community known as the Academy of Death Racers who are participating in this annual Oscars Death Race. We mostly congregate on Discord, linked in the show notes, and this year, some of our members have taken the extra step to actually host a film festival with feature and sort films, including some, I think, that are sort-listed for the Oscars this year, um, which is actually going to be starting this Friday that the episode comes out, January 4th. Uh, Alex and Dell are two of the co-directors of the film festival, so it felt like a good chance to have them on to not only plug the festival, but also talk about some of these films in the race, um, as well as about Netflix's overall chances at getting Best Picture after many years of trying. Before we hop into the conversation, one last warning that we will be likely touching on spoilers for the four films in question, so if you do want to go into these films completely blind, pause this episode and come back whenever you're ready. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Alex and Adele on films available on Netflix for the Oscars Death Race.
And joining me on the podcast this episode are two members of the Academy of Death Racers, Adele and Alex. Welcome, guys. Thank, Thank you for having us. us. All right. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves, give me your name, where you're calling from, and how do you describe yourselves, you know, you know, your relationship with film and, and so on. Now, Adele, why don't you go ahead and start first? Uh, well, my name's Adele, or rather my alias is named Adele. I live in Pennsylvania. I've been doing the death race officially since 2016-ish, the year I graduated from college, because all of a sudden I had a ton of free time. I had sort of dipped my toe into death racing before that. When I was in college, we had more of a we had a wider selection at my school. I work in theater which is going to become relevant later. A lot of my favorite movies are musicals. I also have a lot of favorite films from across the spectrum. All right, all right. Uh, and then Alex, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as well? All right, my name is Alex. On a lot of socials, I go by Almobs, A-L-M-O-W-B-S. I am just south of Seattle in Tacoma, Washington. Thereabouts of where Twin Peaks is known for, kind of up in the mountains near there. I've been doing the race now for, good lord, I started when Castaway was there. So I want to say it's been about 20 years successfully for only a few now. So I had to really spend decades refining being able to watch things, which is a hell of an achievement. I asked you guys to watch four films, actually technically five films, because uh, initially this was, so this episode is going to be about the best picture nominees according to Gold Derby that are most likely, like the top, within the top 12. Um, I decided to theme this episode around streaming, you know, uh, for, you know, first episode back, stuff that's easily available for people to wanting to, you know, get their death race started. Um, that being said, you know, uh, initially uh, we had Being the Ricardos on this list available on Amazon Prime. Uh, that has since moved down, I believe, to, uh, I want to say number 14 at this point on the list. Um, and then so a couple of days ago, I asked you guys to watch uh, instead The Lost Daughter, which just came out on Netflix because at the time that was number 12. Uh, a funny thing, I checked this morning, it's actually also moved down uh, to number 13 and Drive My Car has moved into the number 12 spot according to Gold Derby. So we're not going to talk about Drive My Car. We'll still talk about Lost Daughter and we'll just make this the Netflix uh, episode still since I'm also not likely going to be able to watch the Drive My Car uh, before the nominations come out anyway. Um, so, yeah, we're going to talk about the Netflix films. Um, again, warning, like I said in the introduction, we will be going a little bit into spoilers here. Um, so you have been warned, that, but still definitely recommend you watch these because there's a decent chance at least, you know, these will get at least one nomination, uh, it seems. All right. So you guys ready to, to get started? Let's do, do it. it. All right. Oh, so my God. <laughs> <laughs> hey. This is so on brand. We're just going to be like an echo. I swear to God. It's so All good. Right. I, I saw your review of some of these. I don't think we will be. <laughs> Oh, nice. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, that make, that just makes for a better podcast. All right, so first up is probably the gorilla or the elephant in the room when it comes to this year's Oscar race, kind of similar to Nomadland from last year, frankly speaking, in a lot of ways. Uh, it's Power of the Dog. Um, the synopsis is that it's a Western psychological drama written and directed by Jane Campion, written based on a 1967 novel of the same name by Tom Savage. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons as Phil and George Burbank, two 1925 ranch-owning brothers as well as Kirsten Dunst as widow Rose Gordon and Cody Smith-McPhee as her son Peter. This debuted at the 78th uh, Venice Film Festival where Campion won the Silver Lion for Best Director. Uh, it had a limited theatrical release on November before releasing on Netflix, of course, uh, worldwide December 1st. 
currently it has a 3.8 on Letterboxd after 135,000 watchers, a 95% from critics, and 82% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. According to Gold Derby, uh, based on their current rankings as of this morning that we're recording this, it is currently uh, first place for Best Picture, first place for Director Jane Campion, second place for Best Actor Benedict Cumberbatch, first place for Supporting Actress Kirsten Dunst, first place for Supporting Actor Cody Smith-McPhee, first place for Adapted Screenplay, second place for Cinematography, third place for Film Editing, second place for Score, and also shortlisted for Sound. So Adele, we'll start with you. Uh, First off, when did you watch this film, and what are your overall thoughts about the film overall? Um, did I watch it in November? It's been a while. It was the first one out of these four that I saw. Did you do a TIFF screening for it? Yes. The September right. for both of us, then. Yes, thank you. I yeah. September and October just kind of mushed into one giant month. Oh my so, god, but, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny that you bring up Nomadland. Because I feel like there's always at least one movie every year that I feel this way about. And this year, I think it's Power of the Dog. I hear everybody just raving about it. It's so beautiful. It's amazing. It's gorgeous. And I watch it and I can acknowledge it's a good film, but it just I it doesn't do much for me. And it's not something that you can personally relate to or personally like enjoy per se? Like I can appreciate the acting and the performances and all the craft behind it. And I can acknowledge it is good. But just for whatever reason, there's like an emotional disconnect for me. Okay. Uh, Alex, what about you? What are your thoughts? When did, so you said you also watched it at TIFF. And what are your overall thoughts on the film? Yeah, I I agree with Adele on a couple of those things. So I definitely feel the same about how this is an every year type of movie. Uh, when you're listing off all the things that it's up for. I actually made a, a list too. And it's, it's borderline disgusting. We're just like, I really hope the nominations shake up a lot of this because i get really sick of seeing something just dominating every category if it's a thing like lord of the rings or whatever i get it but if it's something like this it seems like a bit of a stretch in certain technical areas so that's kind of odd i'm not super into that i do i have a weird thing where if i see something a little bit later into the hype I can tend to like it a lot less if my hype level's not met. So I remember going into TIFF, being pretty stoked to get in early on it and wanting to avoid that effect, still having it a bit, but I definitely feel like a lot of my love for it, which was marginal anyway, has dissipated in the last four months. And yeah, it's one of those things I'm I'm just kind of bummed to see it still so high in the conversation and it's overtaken so many other things that are worthy, but that's that's kind of at the fault of the Academy for any given year with any movie you can really mention that's at the top of the list. So I don't know. There's there's some good stuff, but I think which we can break down too, a lot of the toxicity and relationships and stuff in the film there's there's some problematic stuff there. I actually do ultimately feel like this movie would have landed better uh, and been even a better film had it been released about a decade ago. Yeah, I would say like, so I watched this film literally like last night. Um, so it's definitely still relatively fresh in my mind. And then so I, I think I still have a little bit of that afterglow in it where I think I'm of the same mind where, you know, kind of like Nomadland last year, I can acknowledge that there's a lot going on. In fact, I, I arguably would say I like this on a technical level a lot more than Nomadland to yes. some degree. Yeah, um, yeah. 
you know, especially I think for me, the real standout here was the screenplay. Um, I'm actually, I, I haven't seen a lot of the other contenders for adapted screenplay at this point yet, but um, I definitely, uh, you know, I can definitely see why it, it's such a, a, a 400 pound gorilla when it comes to that category. It is an extremely tight screenplay where there's like barely anything that's wasted at all. Everything kind of like foreshadows something else. Um, I will say I was a little bit spoiled about some of the characterizations of the characters, um, you know, a little like before I had seen the film, which kind of you know, gave me an insight watching it the first time where, you know, oh, that's probably like a foreshadowing for this thing, which I think if I had gotten completely blind, I would have like had that post-factor realization and on a second watch do have been able to pick up on that. So I think in that sense, I think it's a very layered screenplay, I think. Um, what do you guys think about the, the screenplay in that regard? I agree. <laughs> yeah, I think um, a lot I, of... I, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm not usually... Unless it's glaringly bad, I usually am that person who just goes, it looks good to me when it comes to screenplay. Usually I have more to say about adapted screenplay than original screenplay, but I also have not read the original uh, source material for this. Yeah, I haven't either, but I would say that because Jane Campion did adapt it, I feel like, so she's being highly praised for directing, I'd say above writing i feel like a lot of her directing was informed by her choices she made in the adaptation in the writing and i also feel like a lot of i'd almost put it hand in hand a lot of the success of the screenplay and as it lands is really informed by the editing and i feel like the editing was also if it makes sense informed by campion's choices she made in her adaptation so i feel like if if they win writing directing editing it's basically they're holding hands anyway. You know, those are all so married to each other with this process, it seems. And I'd even throw, maybe unpopular opinion, but I'd even throw sound design in there too. Because I feel like this movie really, a lot of it, which is crazy because it seems like a quiet film compared to like a war film or whatever. I feel like it really could live or die on how things are delivered through audio. Yeah, I will say the score, you know, I, I, I will say right now my favorite score that I've seen, and we're not going to talk about the end up is, is uh, Spencer's score so far, um, which, you know, it turns out is actually the same composer uh, did the score for Spencer as did the score for here. So it's kind of, you know, makes sense that I, I also noticed that the score here was, you know, it had like that menacing tone to which I think really fit the film in general. Um, so mm -hmm. Alex, you had, the I, best. You, yeah, so Alex, you had mentioned that, you know, there were some problematic things about the film i want to like dig into that because I, I had like a couple of quibbles here so what 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 problematic things came up about the film i i personally a lot of the things i'm reading that i'm disagreeing with are when it talks about things being subtle <laughs> not overt yeah I, I feel like from the very beginning with that diner scene i, I love benedict like he's amazing in this i particularly think he was you know probably better in louis wayne this year than this no one wants to talk about it oh my but, god uh... i love louis wayne <laughs> right oh I'm he's so, so good in it i'm so sad that that has dropped out of basically all the conversation i saw power of the dog and louis wayne at tiff same day oh my god it's just the louis benedict wayne i saw day. a second yeah it's yeah the, so the benedict cumberbatch drawing cats movie oh my god it's so good it's one of his best performances hand down it's a it's criminal that it's not being talked about and that Power of the Dog is overtaking it. And I think a lot of that could kind of boil down to some of the problematic things, like the toxic masculinity. I feel like a lot of it's more marketable 
for it being a cowboy man's man type of thing, you know? Well, and also you have Jane Campion attached and Kirsten Dunn. You, I think you have, it's a little bit more of a high profile Big time. Move. Yeah. And and, and yeah. having and having Netflix's backing, which we'll talk about later on, comes into there as well. Um, yeah, I will say I think like, you know, there definitely is I think like the, the whole point is that there is like a, a an element of toxic masculinity in here, which I think is kind of the point, right? Like he is this character, and I think, you know, getting a little bit more into spoilers, right? Like, you know, I think I think going into the screenplay, like he saw himself, I think, in um, in Cody Smith McPhee's character in some degree, right? Like, you know, you can get from the, the screenplay that they're both, you know, in, they were both intelligent men around that age. And I think the implication is that, you know, at some point, some rough and tumble cowboy man, uh, you know, took him in and, and essentially groomed the individual, which kind of led to this toxic thing, um, situation, which then, you know, it was, was then basically him trying to recreate that. So then the question is, are you, is does that make like Benedict Cumberbatch? You know, he does a very good job of making him himself a very unlikable character in the first two thirds of this movie. Um, probably even arguably the home film, right? And you know, to, to his credit, right? I, I, apparently, he went full method actor uh, here um, during the shooting, and I think that that definitely carries through. And and but then it comes to that. Okay, he opens then up, but then. I don't know. I, there's, 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 I, I guess I'm still coalescing my thoughts about this film, having literally just seen it last night. Um, I feel like there's a lot kind of like like interpretation here that's not really explicitly said, which I think, you know, the fact that it, I'm still thinking about it even the day after is, is at least a good sign to some degree. Well, and I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch, to an extent, some of his most famous roles have just been him playing unlikable characters too. Um, I think this is probably the one with the least... Uh, redeemable qualities about him i mean i think about um uh he played like julian assange and uh he, he played sherlock holmes but i mean he has this uh he gets typecast a lot as kind of being these big create uh larger than life characters who are super unlikable but there's you know that thing about them that draws you in and i guess in this particular case i don't really know why anybody would associate themselves with Phil unless they had to like Kirsten Dunst's character doesn't really have a choice I don't necessarily think him being toxic is the problem per se because the movie does they don't make a secret of it they don't make a secret about how terrible he is I don't think there's necessarily a problem inherently with him being like with toxic uh, masculinity in the movie because Jane Campion does point it out and the movie does point it out Right. I will say the other part that kind of made this film a, a bit of a tough watch is that um, if you ha- if you have any kind of sensitivity about you know potential abuse to animals, um, there are a couple of scenes that are kind of tough to watch. Especially that 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 Cumberbatch is involved with. Um, you know, Peter apparently got pretty upset with some of these. Um, not that I give particular weight to Peter, but it was you know pretty tough to watch uh, some of the stuff that he's doing in in the film. Um, so that's just like a, a heads up for anyone who's who's planning on watching this if you haven't already been if you haven't already. Right. So a few things speaking to like Benedict being unlikable, I'd say even his most box office known character right now, Dr. Strange, that guy's downright mean. No one wants to talk about it. (laughs) Dr. Strange is is not a nice dude. He's one of my favorite characters. I'm looking at a Funko right now on my desk of him, but he's not a nice guy. So there's that. I I also remember watching the film, uh, the beginning of it, watching it months ago. And just being hypercritical, like I, I love Benedict Cumberbatch, one of my favorite actors, 
But I, I remember being like, okay, you nailed the whistling. You worked really hard on it. That's cool. Watching him twirl that chair and being like, okay, are we going to give this guy an Oscar for his chair twirling? I hope that's not the case. Because he commits so hard. He's so great. And it's one of those things where whether or not he may be overdue, which I know people would say more about Will Smith right now, I, I don't like to see people be awarded for being at that point. I feel like it should be something a little bit better than what we're looking at in this movie. We talked a lot about Benedict, but you know, in the last two people we haven't really talked about are uh, Kristen Dunst, Kirsten Dunst, and Cody Smith McPhee. And you know, I, I can't really, you know, again, don't have a lot of comparison for Kirsten Dunst again in the other categories, or even Cody Smith McPhee. But I will say Cody's performance as uh, Peter really outstanding, especially in like the last twenty minutes of the film or so. I will say, the first time I saw this film was in September, but I did watch it again in i want to say it was right before christmas uh with my mom because she wanted to watch it so i kind of half watched it you know as i was in and out of rooms decorating and such and that was the part that really stood out to me this time was cody smith mcphee um i guess i don't know if last time i was just so focused on benedict and just trying to uh you know digest everything but this time was that was what really stood out yeah, I'm excited to go back and rewatch it. I, I do remember there's a definite shift that happens. And I think I, it even happens a little bit sooner than I'm giving it credit for in those last several scenes. But he, in a lot of ways, overtakes things much sooner than it visually gives him credit for with reveals and such. There, there's a real power dynamic and he just, he nails it. A lot of it's just quiet acting, which is so hard compared to a louder performance like Benedict's. Louder in, in not verbal ways, but it's just so bold. And Cody has that hard role where he just really not, has to just step aside. But there's so much that happens there at the end that's revealed that not only does it tell the viewer that you really need to go back and have that second watch but it makes you pay attention in that moment and reevaluate everything you've seen him do cody do in that role it's it's really that kid had to play to everything he's doing and then all that subtext and it's such a stellar performance yeah, I think, you know, I was reading some comments on the our movie subreddit, you know, discussion about this film. You know, they gave someone pointed out this really interesting thing where you look at the two scenes with the bunnies that, that Cody Smith's involved in. Those are almost like foreshadowing of what he does with relation to his mother and later with Benedict as well and his character. Um, I think, you know, that again, that goes back to the screenplay as well as to uh, his character as well. So definitely uh, a, a, tech, uh, a, a, a stellar performance for him. So wouldn't be upset if he ends up taking the Oscar for that. No, definitely not. Uh, anything else before we move on? We are a little bit long on this one, but he, this is kind of the fun one, so it does make sense. We'll be talking about it extra. I, I do want to urge any listeners, there's a very cool story floating around out there that Jane Campion has talked about in her casting Cody and what that looked like where he walked in the room and she immediately got the vibe that he was the character, so approached it where she was not speaking to him but was speaking to Peter the entire time. And it is a trip to hear her explain it. It is super cool. Uh, I will also say I remember, because I'm a lifelong fan, I remember watching this film and quietly fuming that I could just feel people ignoring Kirsten Dunst. 
and not giving her the credit she deserves. There's a particular part where she just has everything taken out of her and she's confined to her room. And it's just such, again, with quiet acting and it might not seem outright so because she's so upset. But there's a lot going on as a performer for her under the surface with just a quiet rage and helplessness. Basically, you know, the consideration of this is it. I'm a ghost. Like, you know, just the the darkest things that she conveys were mind blowing. Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a stellar performance as well. Um, all right, so we'll we'll go ahead and move on then to the next film, and you know most of these are kind of like toward the bottom of the rankings for within the top ten. Um, so you know we won't spend as much time as we did on Power of the Dog. Um, so th- the next one is though uh, apparently Netflix's third most movie ever, um, which kind of blows my mind. Uh, oh, we I, I hear some sighs. So um, we have Don't Look Up. Uh, it's an allegorical satire written, produced, and directed by Adam McKay about the indifferent government and media response to climate change and to some degree the COVID pandemic. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence play two astronomers who discover a planet-killing comet bound for Earth and try to warn the president and her chief of staff, played respectively by Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill, and they talk to the media, represented by Clay Blanchett and Tyler Perry, while business interests, represented by Mark Rylance's character, take interest in the comet for other reasons. It had a limited release December 10th before debuting on Netflix December 24th. Currently has a 3.2 on Letterboxd out of 412,000 watchers, 55% critics, 75, 77% audience on Mon Tomatoes. Currently in ninth place for Best Picture. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is just outside the top five at seventh for Best Actor. It's fourth for Original Screenplay, fifth for Film Editing, fourth for Best Score, and fourth for Best Original Song. Just Look Up by Ariana Grande. So I heard some size. Uh, we started with Adele last time. So Alex, why don't you go ahead and kick us off this time? All right, I, I will speak on the movie, but because I'm I'm cynical, I will also say that Adam McKay has a really good show called Succession that is a lot better than this movie, and I recommend that. And he also did a movie called Vice that people don't like as much as The Big Short, and I will recommend that. Saying those two things. Yeah, this movie, my biggest quip, I think, and after watching plenty of other reactions and trying to land on where it left the bad taste in my mouth i think it suffered most from being too long some of like the cutaway shots the extra crap that he threw in there the the editing mistake that he loves to say was left in on purpose which is a bunch of crap wait which was the editing mistake actually because i kind of like i didn't notice that the first time what was the editing so the part where Timmy Chalamet picks up J-Law and they're like hanging out with his friends at the dumpster fire. There's a quick shot where the camera turns and reviews the crew with face masks and everything. Oh, wow. And Adam McKay came out and was like, oh, I meant to leave that in. Good find, guys. There's my Easter egg about COVID. And like, it's like this commentary that he said was like, here's this, uh, this crazy stuff that was going on at this time. So we just wanted to show more of the chaos. It's like, yeah, right, guy. Because there's not enough chaos in your story, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I feel like I haven't pinpointed exactly how much shorter it should be, but there were a lot of things. If it was just tightened up a little bit, I feel like that's a cop-out, too, being like, hey, it'd be better if it was shorter. I, I think it does suffer from that. It lingers on too many things. I feel like this could have used a really good editorial eye in the screenplay phase. (laughs) There's just so much problematic with it that 
oh my gosh it's one of those things where we could really talk about it longer than we did with power of the dog just on its issues <laughs> uh, adele how about you i mostly agree um i it definitely was too long that is the number one thing to me i feel like i would have been way more forgiving if it had been two hours even uh, i mean even, shorter would have been even better but two hours is usually where I start to tap out unless it's something that's really, really, really grabbing me. It could have landed better as like a, a shorter, punchy romp. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I will say I liked this probably the best out of Adam McKay's quote unquote serious uh, films that he's started to make. I, I know that they were super, you know, condescending about uh, to the audience in the big short where, you know, we're going to explain this to you like you're three. I needed it even more dumbed down. I just could not follow it. I can appreciate that they tried, but it just, I couldn't get into it. Yeah, I guess that's where like our Same backgrounds here. are different because I actually really enjoyed the big sword. That that's, it is the only other Adam McKay film that I can actually remember watching. Um, that's that I was also an econ major in college. So that, that might've gotcha. been a part of it. Um, that said, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I was listening to some reviews about this. I think as a piece of satire, you know, I mean, what like the, the general conversation I've seen kind of has been in two camps. One, the general audience. So, you know, most of my friends who aren't um, film buffs, right, who are, aren't doing the death race, they see this film and they're like, wow, this is a really great movie. You know, I think the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes being higher than the critic scores kind of suggests that like, hey, people really are responding to this in a positive way so i think general audience generally likes it i think where the critics generally don't like it as much from what i've read has been okay this is a not very subtle allegory for climate change and you know frankly as a topic uh it really that shouldn't be subtle for an issue that important that said it's taking a lot of punches at a lot of different people without any real teeth to it, uh, per se. Um, it doesn't really have like as much biting commentary. And that's what a lot of the critique I've heard from critics comes down on. Um, not, not, not getting into the whole technical aspects of how it's constructed and so on. What are your thoughts on, on like the on how successful the satire and, and takedown is? Like you said, it, it takes punches at basically every single group. And I feel like, and I know, maybe this was not the intention, but I feel like there's so much media that tries to, you know, have it both, you know, I see both sides and then it ends up not really saying much of anything. And in this particular case, uh, I feel like there there's too few people that are depicted as not, as giving a crap about the impending disaster. If it's an allegory for climate change, there are a lot of people who care deeply about it, but they just don't have the institutional power to do anything. So Adam McKay being very cynical and like, oh, all you care about is Ariana Grande breaking up with her fictional boyfriend. Like, I can care about climate change and Ariana Grande. I have the mental capacity to do both, Adam McKay. <laughs> Speaking of Ariana Grande, what did you think of the best original song, which is likely going to get nominated according to Gold Derby? It's fine. Just fine. Yeah, yeah. it's okay. Um, I, I the the lyrics are not subtle, but that's what they're going for. It's supposed to be a joke, it, so it doesn't really bother me. Um, there is I've been seeing in the media cycle they keep talking about you know oh Ariana Grande improved some of the line uh, some of the lyrics. And then they don't really specify which one. It's just kind of a weird, like they're trying to 
beef give her more up. Credit. Yeah, exactly. They're trying to really beef up her part in it. Not to say that she's not an important part of the song, but just that I think they're trying to spin it and push it higher into the narrative, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah, um, I feel like, especially after last year, if they can at least justify a nomination for her, that's such a huge ratings boost for the Academy. Oh, right. yeah. Which I think also plays right. Like the fact that this is Netflix's third most film ever, watched film ever, that a lot of people, if it gets nominated for Best Picture or other categories, maybe will, for, for the Academy, hopefully get more people to watch the Oscars to see if they'll oh, look totally. up as well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess to close out this film, I'll, I'll, I, I, this is like a funny anecdote. Um, so it, this reminds me a lot of this one. So my wife and I, uh, over Christmas, we watched it you know, on a, on a Christmas vacation. We actually uh, went down to Philadelphia to get out of New York um, for, for the Christmas holidays. And we ended up watching it in our hotel room there. Um, and, you know, we didn't want to go out too much in Philly because of, you know, the the, the pandemic because, going on outside. Oh, I thought, I thought you were going to say because it's Philly. <laughs> Yeah, but in any case, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, we, we, we want to stay inside mostly to get out, to see out of the pandemic. And so, you know, we watched this film. It's about, you know, a, a planet coming down to to kill the Earth. And this reminded me, so it's funny because a couple of years ago, um, in the before times, we had actually taken a trip to Hong Kong. Um, and on, like, the middle of our vacation, there was a typhoon that actually came through Hong Kong. So we couldn't go out anywhere. So we literally were just stuck in our hotel all day. And we had to just watch like the 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 two in, like English language movie channels in the hotel room basically. And this movie, I think it stars um, Steve Carell. I think um, looking for a friend for the end of the earth. Oh yeah, is also about a film uh, about a a, a planet. Uh, killing asteroid comet coming to kill the earth basically um so that's like a really weird parallel for me the, and a weird sense of deja vu um and of course both of them spoilers end up with uh the the the, the planet getting destroyed so I, I know we were wrapping up i did just think of one other smart brain point that i had when i watched the movie um because you were talking about being you know internationally this movie is about a planet killer asteroid. Oh right. And yeah. I think I think there's like one montage where the news report goes, Oh yeah, uh the UN's looking into this. Mm-hmm. And that and that's it. That's the only mention that other countries in the world exist. No one else is trying to or if they are trying to also deflect the asteroid, nothing else comes of it. Oh, it's we America first. I well, you know, <laughs> America if America can't do it, then no one can. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. I did have a quick point or a couple things uh, as well. So for such a stacked best actor race, and I actually have Gold Derby up right now as a refresher, there's a lot of things that aren't really in the conversation anymore and should be. I Pig comes to mind with Nick Cage. But I feel like, right? I feel like Leo having one scene of loud acting should not discredit or, you know, take a spot from some of these career high performances that yeah. exist out there. And it's not just Nicholas Cage. There's a bunch, uh, Simon Rex too. Oh my God. He I, should be in yeah, there. He should. Oh my but... gosh. He absolutely should. And I, I feel like Leo in this movie didn't even get to a level of acting that he did in nineties television and not saying he was that bad in this, but that's, I'm really actually saying that, Leo's great and he can be great. He's always been great, but this isn't, this isn't his this his isn't higher it. level. Yeah, it absolutely isn't. And I also for a last point on Don't Look Up, 
the epiphany I've had, the main takeaway is, especially with McKay's success with HBO, Don't Look Up would have been a fantastic mini. Oh, yeah. Yes. I can can see that. Well, and then have an episode focusing on, you know, here's the episode about the military. Here's the episode about the media. And just really, yeah. Well, and it would have justified it being more, you know, two and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> and all that cast, too, you know, like yeah. everyone yes. would have some no, time. No, that, that's the problem. Then can you get Leo to stay on for like multiple episodes and so no. on? No, no. Leo's, you know, Mr. Film Actor. He would never deign to do yeah. TV. All right. So, all right. Then moving on then, uh, this is something I literally watched like an, I finished like a, like a half hour before our, uh, our, our call here. Um, the Lost Daughter, um, the one that's kind of like a last minute edition here. So this one is a psychological drama written and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal in her directorial debut based on a novel by the same name by anonymous Italian author Elena Ferrante. It stars Olivia Coleman as Leda, a middle-aged college professor with a younger version played by Jesse Buckley. Buckley, uh, who runs into a young mother named Nina on a vacation in Greece, played by Dakota Jack Johnson. Um, it had its world premiere at the Venice International Film Festival, where Gyllenhaal won the Golden Ocella for Best Screenplay. It had a limited release uh, theatrically starting December 17th, before releasing worldwide on Netflix December 31st. Currently at 3.6 on Letterboxd, with 52,000 viewers, 95% for critics, but only 44% audience on Rotten Tomatoes, which is a pretty big divide, opposite direction from uh, Don't Look Up. Uh, Gold Derby has it, as I said earlier, 13th for Best Picture, 2nd for Best Actress Olivia Colman, and 2nd for Adapted Screenplay. Um, Adele, what did you think of Lost Daughter? I think this is the one that we're probably going to differ the most on. I did not like it at all. I mean, Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley are amazing, as always. But I feel like, I don't know if it just was the material, or if it was Maggie Gyllenhaal, um, just being a first-time director. I mentioned that I work in theater, and it came off to me like the sort of production where the director doesn't really know what to do with them and they are just experienced enough that you know you leave them alone they sort it out and they kind of come to their own performance if that makes sense like they navigated it themselves um the best directed out of all of them and i think i said this somewhere and i was very proud of myself for this observation uh, the best directed actress in the movie is Dakota Johnson because that is the part Maggie Gyllenhaal would have played. So Maggie Gyllenhaal knew exactly what she wanted. She was very clear with Dakota. And then the rest of it, I feel, kind of got lost in this mush of just not really being sure what to do with the adaptation. Or like or like I said, it might not be the adaptation. It might be just the direction and not really being sure what to do. Although I don't know how else you would have done it. Um, the There was a lot of expositional heavy lifting going on in the flashbacks with Jessie Buckley. So she got all the really hefty material. And then you cut to the present and Olivia Coleman was mostly just... her All, the, all of her big uh, moments were mostly just her remembering what she did in the past in the flashbacks, if that makes sense. Olivia Coleman had moments in the present where she got some stuff to do, but it just, I don't know, something about it didn't jive. Okay. Uh, Alex, it seems that based on what Adele said that you probably like this one then. 
I did, but see, this is one of my favorite things about our community and something that I, I just love about Adele as well is that uh, she challenges a lot of my views on things and then blows my socks off where she's like, not only did I not think about that, but I totally agree with her. <laughs> so I'm just like, I, my mind is actively blown right now. I'm just like looking at my wall like, yeah, she's totally right. Okay, so I I get the Dakota Johnson thing. That makes so much sense. I totally agree with uh, her with your perspective on her performance and with the directing too. I I absolutely feel like it where they were just left to their own devices. I can see that where it did feel on the surface like oh you know she's doing a really good job with directing her cast and leading them, but also all these people are so competent. They're they're such a good group where it's like she got you know kind of an avengers style group of people to make her look good you know <laughs> like even down to uh um i forget his name the guy who's in like the house on haunted hill and stuff um creepy creepy husband guy but i feel like uh, even down to smaller parts like that that guy is so good and he's nailed being a creep where you don't have to direct anything. You just tell him, stand there and look at the camera and it's done for you, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> he's got it. And I feel like I, I am, as I'm analyzing it more with that perspective, seeing small things like with Maggie Gyllenhaal directing the little girl, I feel yeah. like there was a lot there where it was done for her in the writing with a lot of the messiness where the girl's unruly and has behavior issues. So she just let the little girl be the little girl and didn't reel in anything and direct her really. Yeah. Um, and that even came down to like her talking over a lot of the dialogue and everything, which sure, I get that speaking to stuff I even did when I was younger. A lot of that is I feel like a younger first time director being like, Nah, it's good. It's real life. We're just going to do it because that's how it would really be instead of trying to hone in or perfect anything. So I totally feel the same. And this might be another situation where a lot of her decisions were informed by her adaptation of the screenplay, where she just made a lot of choices there. Yeah, so reading actually read up a little bit about the adaptation of the screenplay. So like I mentioned, it's by the original novel is based is from a anonymous, so no one actually knows who they are, but the pen name is Elena Ferrante. And all of her films are actually based in Italy and the characters are all Italian. And here the adaptation took the step to de-Italianize the characters, uh, you know, set them from coming from Boston, Cam Cambridge, or from Queens and be a Greek American family and have it set in Greece as opposed to Italy. The, the, the real reference back to the Italian is that she's an Italian comp professor, basically. So that, that, that was like an interesting, I guess, like adaptation, I think intensely meant to show that, hey, this trial of being a mother is, is more universal than just to the Italians, right? I will say, I guess, my thoughts. I literally just posted this in the Discord. Um, but it basically feels like an Am I the Asshole post where everyone is everyone's city here, basically. Uh, maybe it's, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm a guy and obviously I'm never going to be a mother. Um, but it's just, I found everyone here pretty unlikable and pretty unredeemable, even more so than Benedict Cumberbatch and Power the Dog, frankly speaking. Mm -hmm. um, where, I don't know, maybe maybe this is just like my male perspective. You know, I, I get that like kids are hard. I know that I was a little shit sometimes growing up for, for my mom and apologies, mom, if you're listening for, for that. But also it's like, I don't know, it, it takes a, a different kind of, uh, it, it, it to me feels like a very 
I don't know. Every everyone here makes very questionable decisions um, and reacts in ways that that are just. You guys are all terrible people, and this is a film that would not have worked if you guys were actually decent people. I feel. Well, and I mean, Alex can probably speak more to this than I can, but uh, I have never, ever, ever wanted children, and this is one of those movies that just confirms that. I just. Like I, I even think I feel like I said this in my review too that I appreciate on paper that this movie is trying to put out there, you know, not everybody should be a parent. Being a mother is really difficult. And, you know, because a lot of movies that do that, there's always like, being a mother is hard, but it's worth it. And this one definitely does not come yeah. down on that side. Yeah. And I really like that, but yeah, I'll, I'll let Alex, you know, respond to that real quick. But I will say that, like, even the fact that, like, okay, see, when NC stole the daughter's doll, for whatever reason, I couldn't really fathom, like, okay, you just steal the doll because you wanted to or whatever. <laughs> um, like, okay, it's one thing to, you know, in like, in the first, like, 10, 15 minutes, it's like, okay, she's a loner. She doesn't like being around crowds. Like, you know, this is the really loud, obnoxious Greek-American family coming through and ruining her vacation. Okay, sir, you're going to get upset at that. Totally understandable. Are you really going to steal the daughter's doll then? And then, like, I don't know. It just felt very messed up to me. Anyway, Alex, what are your thoughts on the whole uh, motherhood perspective here? Uh, which, uh, again, I, I as a male uh, have, am the least qualified on this call to speak about. Uh, well, really quick on the doll, because I keep thinking about that too. I feel like in her petty way with with little things like being asked to move or whatever being bothered with it being loud that's probably the only thing that she i don't know gives her some small sense of power and is like this screw you to these people and it's really stupid i mean i feel like there's a lot of metaphors in there and it's it's just poorly executed i did also want to circle back and make a quick point point to something that adele said about olivia coleman's acting i think it is very informed by jesse buckley it is very reactionary and i don't know about their process working together and again i don't maggie gyllenhaal might not have had them do this which is something that i think should have been done i'd certainly hope the two of them spent time together informing one another on their choices as as characters but i still feel like adele was right in that a lot of those things were done by jesse buckley and olivia coleman would have had to just build on what buckley did so that I don't want to discredit Olivia Coleman at all. She was great, but it's it's largely Jesse Buckley's character. So as as to the motherhood stuff, uh, as someone who was not actually planning on having kids initially and wanted to be more career driven, I I see a lot of different perspectives and younger me in certain situations of uh, just you know being overwhelmed or whatever. I will say personally that trying to watch this movie took me about two days because I couldn't get more than even 10 minutes of time away from my kids to do so where they constantly needed something. And I, I wish that was an exaggeration, <laughs> but I was paying attention to the time code. And I'd even say so to my kids where I was just like, I got eight minutes that time. I got six <laughs> minutes. What can I do for you? You know, where you just make sure everyone's needs are met, but there's always just this, oh, wait, one more thing. And a lot of that too just boils down to them like wanting to be involved where they know that like mom's watching something the kids shouldn't watch. Let's go see what it is. That type mm -hmm. of thing. So... <laughs> 
especially my oldest where he's just like getting to that age where he's you know preteen and he's like i want to see what this thing is that i shouldn't see so uh, there was a lot of that but i <laughs> i found it increasingly relatable in parts while i'm watching it especially the jesse buckley things where she's just about to burst for not getting a breather you know in the parts where her kids like being physically violent or more subtle things but it's just like <laughs> I might walk away from this in a few months and change my review, but in the moment I was just like, this is too relatable. So it's probably, I, I think I might have given it a higher review than it might have deserved. And that's not at all uncommon for me to come back to something even years later and be like, I liked it too much or I was too hard on it. And uh, that's actually something I could see myself doing with Don't Look Up, where I go back later and I'm like, you know, it's kind of funny. I'll kick it up a half a star. So I might have liked this too much in the moment because I was just like, I feel it. I really feel it. <laughs> so so you're, saying, you're saying that Netflix should send everyone who watches this uh, a kit to babysit as they are watching the film to best appreciate it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, they just have this like constant alarm going off in their ear, just like, hey, look at me. Stop what you're doing. <laughs> I will say I definitely agree. I think Jesse Buckley's portrayal was probably the highlight of the film for me. At first, I didn't really, I don't know, the, I don't know how I feel about the, the adapted screenplay because like I felt it was kind of messy. Appar apparently, it's very faithful. Like a lot of the small details, like the cicada on her pillow and whatever, like were in the novel originally. Um, so, Apparently, apparently it's a it's a faithful adaptation. Um, that said, I do and but the flashbacks were like it took took me a while to really get into the flashbacks. But once I did, I think again, Jesse, yeah, I totally one hundred percent agree. Jesse, if there was a, a role here that needs to be nominated, it it should be I think Jesse Buckley. It should be Jesse Buckley, and I noticed that she's not in the Gold Derby uh, uh, stats, which is a crime. And like I said about Olivia Coleman earlier, I like Olivia Coleman. I thought she did fine in this movie, but like it reminds me a little bit of Meryl Streep in um, the the Margaret Thatcher biopic, and maybe this is a hot oh, take. Yeah. I remember not being happy when she won because I felt like ninety percent of her performance in that movie in The Iron Lady was her. You know, crowds are rioting outside, or she's watching stock footage on the TV, and you know she's looking pensive, and that was it. And I feel like maybe not to such a severe degree, but I feel like that's what happened with Olivia Coleman's character in this one. Yeah, I will say, okay, so last thought, um, if we're comparing uh, uh, Power of the Dog to Nomadland, you know, clear front runner, Western, um, and so on, a um, lot of, you know, dominant in a lot of categories, I would say, I think this one reminds me most of uh, One Night in Miami, actually, from last year where it's probably going to get nominated for adapted screenplay for one of the acting roles. Um, and it's from a first-time actor-turned-director. Um, it's just going to probably just barely miss getting nominated for the final Best Picture. What do you guys think on that take? That sounds about right. Yeah, especially with a cast that does a lot of the heavy lifting for the director. Right now, my ire would be mostly directed on if it did get nominated for, like, director... Um, and right now it looks really high on screenplay. I don't know. I feel like we were talking about some of the, you know, the metaphors and it, it to me, it felt kind of clunky and like, you know, look how deep I am. 
All right, so final film that I'm going to talk about is probably my favorite of the four films. Hey. Uh, it is uh, Tick, Tick, Boom. So this is a biographical musical drama directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, also his directorial debut, based on a stage musical of the same name by Rent creator Jonathan Larson about his life in the late 80s and 90s living in New York City before he created Rent. It stars Andrew Garfield as Larson, alongside Alexandra Ship as his girlfriend Susan, Robin De Jesus as Michael, his best friend, as well as Joshua Henry and Vanessa Hudgens as performers of the titular play. Uh, this the world premiere was at the AFI Fest November 10th, 2021, before a limited theatrical release, and then coming to Netflix November 19th. Currently a 3.9 on that letterbox with 196,000 viewers, are actually the highest of all of these films. Uh, 88% critics and 96% audience on Rotten Tomatoes. Currently, it's at 8th for Best Picture, 3rd for Best Actor, Actor Andrew Garfield, 5th for Best Sound. Um, so, obviously, I really enjoyed this one, as I just said. Uh, Alex, what are your thoughts on Tick, Tick, Boom? So, you guys off take the rain a lot on this one. Um, I'll, I'll knock out a lot of my stuff about it right now. I'm not a big musical person. Not that I don't enjoy them. There's a lot that I do like in film adaptations we just don't have a lot of that exposure over on this coast where it's it's not a big part of the culture uh when i've gone over to the east coast it's something i've really enjoyed to be around and to be around uh friends and family that have had that saturation and and that culture i will say that in watching this i feel like about 20 25 years ago when TV, like HBO or Showtime, would have their big made-for-TV movies that would also be released on DVD that were very highly executed. Uh, I mean, it's different than now because a lot of things are simultaneous or exclusive to streaming or whatever. But I'd f- I feel like this was it had a feel to me of those really, really good ones back then, where it had that level. It didn't feel like a big blockbuster-type movie, as I feel like it could have, especially with Lin-Manuel's uh, experience on Broadway, I, I feel like I almost feel like he was held back in what he was allowed to do with this because I feel like he could have not only gone bigger but put more heart and soul into it. It felt a bit castrated. I don't know if that was a, a thing that happened in post or what you know didn't quite land for me there that I'm I'm vibing on negatively, but I feel like something was held back. I don't know if it was initially supposed to be longer or what the deal is, but I also feel like a lot of the narrative structuring (sighs) wasn't really decided on which way they wanted to lean, so there's not only a mix, but this might be the exact opposite of a Don't Look Up situation where it could have easily been longer, and I would have been happy with that if that would have meant fleshing out some of the narrative stylings and having a little bit more impact in certain areas. Adele, you walk, work in theater, and so I'm guessing you're a big musical person here. Uh, yes. What are your thoughts uh, on, on Tick, Tick, Boom? I mean, I can see where you are coming from, Alex. Um, I do think that in some respects, and I know that, you know, we didn't necessarily give the benefit of the doubt to the other directors, because I follow Lin-Manuel on Twitter, and I see all the articles from Playbill about, you know, every single little minute detail. So there was a lot of this got cut off by COVID like so many other movies. And so that's why I feel like that might have led to some of the feeling disjointedness. That makes sense. All right. Uh, Like they talked a lot about the diner scene, um, uh, the Sunday sequence. Yeah. Which apparently, Uh, apparently is like 
the Avengers portals open scene for theater kids, basically. Oh, oh my God. Yes. It literally just every single person in that scene is like the biggest name you can think of. And there were supposed to be more, but again, because of COVID, Lin-Manuel was not supposed to have a cameo in that scene. Well, according to him, I could easily (laughs) see, I could easily see that being a, you know, sure Lin, but, um, but he, according to him, he was not supposed to cameo in that scene. It was supposed to be uh, two other actors who uh, could not make it because of quarantining restrictions. But no, I I feel like I see this isn't up for adapted, or at least it's not very high up on adapted right now. And I can see why. Uh, but I do think out of the current field, it's probably the most difficult uh, adaptation that they uh to jump that bridge that gap because tick tick boom is a weird show i've never seen it live nobody does it it's um it started out as a one-man show and then when jonathan larson passed they added a bunch of songs extra songs into it and added two other people and made it a third three-person show and that's what i know the they did a recording of that with um raul esparza and actually, as, Lin, Lin-Manuel actually did that at New York City Center as the Jonathan Larson character at one point. Exactly. Well, And that's why I do think, even though I don't think he's the best director ever, Lin-Manuel did have some kind of an understanding to it. And he's very much like a Jonathan Larson type in that, you know, he created this giant mega musical that is now the, defi- redefining the genre and, you know, he talks a lot about no- drawing inspiration from Larson and studying Larson for years and years and years. So I do feel like just because of where he was coming from and the other resources he was able to draw from, like, no, Lin-Manuel comes off a little bit like a George Lucas type in that he is very fine with getting other good people on board and, you know, here, you do this, you do this. And bringing it all together. When you listen to him in interviews, he is not one of those people who like, I did this all myself. I'm a genius. He's very delegative. Like he delegates. Yes. that That's the word I was looking for. Out of the four we talked about, this is the one I was the least ambiguous on. I definitely loved it. But I will say the very first time I watched it, I felt I was a little bit disappointed. I don't know if that was because of, you know, sky high expectations I kept seeing all these really great reviews from people who were not theater people. And they were like, this is amazing. Five stars. This is, you know, the best musical movie I've ever seen. Um, and then when I went into it, I was like, oh, it, it, it's good. Do you think a lot of that could be Andrew's performance? That too. I do we'll, think so. We'll get to Andrew Garfield in a second. So I, I guess like my perspective here, right? So um, funnily enough, like o- over the Thanksgiving holiday, when I went back to visit my family and we were talking about the movies, my, my siblings were surprised when they said that I enjoyed it because I liked musicals, um, which is weird because like we grew up watching Disney musicals. Apparently it's because I really, really disliked the live act, the live action Les Mis uh, film of the film version um like i literally did not like it and then um my wife uh who is a very big musical person she used to do musical theater in the philippines as a hobby um 
you know, see, see, definitely, I get things changed my mind. And living in New York, you know, seeing Broadway stuff, they also helped change my mind a lot. Um, but uh, so obviously, like I said, my wife's a big musical theater person. And so she's always been super into Rent. And I actually had never seen Rent in full. So like, I think like two nights before we watched Tick, Tick, Boom, we watched the 2005 film version of Rent. Uh, and then as kind of like preparation to like, you know, understand Jonathan Larson and like, you kind of like, and, and, and in that sense, you can definitely see where a lot of his inspiration for Rent came from if, you know, Tick, Tick, Boom is supposedly semi-autobiographical, right? Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I like I said, I definitely enjoyed it. I think it might hit a little differently for me because in about a week, I'm turning 30. Um, so it's very much like, okay, this is like me at this point in my life, basically. So I think I had that particular personal resonance with it. Um, but yeah, I, as far as Andrew Garfield, if we can talk about the man of the hour. Um, yeah, I mean, I started seriously, like, keeping track of myself watching film. I think... I want to say 2016 it was. Um, and the first film I actually watched where I did, I started keeping track of the films I watched was Martin Scorsese's Silence, um, oh, which, so which starred Andrew Garfield. Um, and that's, I think, where I really started to really become an Andrew Garfield fan. And of course, you know, Amazing Spider-Man 2 um, and, and, and Social Network and so on. Like I've, you know, I... And even just like on all of the late night interviews that Andy Garfield does, he's just like a consummate, like professional, but also like a real empathetic, just a great guy that I really enjoy. Yeah, he's the best. So, I mean, frankly, right? Like, yeah, sir, Will Smith's currently number one for best actor. Benedict Cumberbatch, like we said, is number two. Give this man best actor, please. That's my one wish. My one wish for the Oscar. I don't care. Even if, if somehow like Lost Outer somehow wins best picture, I don't care as long as Andrew Garfield wins Best Actor. I will be happy. Yes. I don't like when people are just throwing Oscars, like I was saying earlier, but there's an exception, I feel like, every few years for someone that comes along and you're just like, you're so happy to see them there because not only have they just been around for a while, but just it's so nice when there's someone that's so likable and you just root for them because they're just so they're so great. And he is just so, he's that person. I, I do, I really, it's not going to happen, but I really want to see Nicolas Cage be at the top of the conversation. Uh, but man, just to see this this kid after being in the industry for so long and always being so steadily good, I'd love to see him just crush it and get it because he's just great. Yeah. I mean, I will say, right, like one one sneaky, so I, I would say, you know, and here's another hot take that maybe is not so hot. I think getting a nomination for best sound is sneakily a back alley to getting best picture. Um, and the reason for that is that historically from what I found is that, um, so in order to win best picture, you probably need to be at least nominated for best editing, the kind of so broader support, uh, within the Academy. Um, however, one other fun fact is that in order to, uh, all the films that have won Best Editing have also won Best Sound, back when there were two sound categories, at least one of the two sound categories. Um, so I think getting nominated for sound, at the very least, is a pretty solid sign of support for um, for this film, uh, for the Best Picture Race. I love that. I'm a big sound nerd from back in school, and I think that is, not only is that a really cool stat, Paolo, but I think it's uh, it's a fantastic point, and I think that sound should be a bigger part of conversations and it's not yeah 
Yeah. And, you know, going back to your original point where you guys thought that the film was a little cut off probably by COVID, you know, were you guys thinking like, you know, would this like that? Would you want it to be more extravagant, like a In the Heights, you know, like full on musical type situation? Oh, like, were bigger. You hoping something like it that? could yes. be bigger. And I wish it were bigger. Like, I didn't. I'm glad Adele said that. I, I knew something was off, but um, that makes a lot of sense. And my heart goes out to Lynn for that because. Man, that's got to be frustrating because he's he's great. Like I said, I know so little about theater, but I am a fan of him. I think he's incredible, and that's got to suck to have something that is such an important story for him to tell and such an important story for people that are fans of theater to have it cut short because of this crappy virus. You know, that yeah. sucks. Get your vaccines, people. All right. Cool. So Netflix for the past couple of years has really been upping their uh, their their Oscars face, right? I mean, really before what, 20, I want to say 2018, 2019, really, they didn't really, they weren't really in contention, right? The only category they were had really any success in uh, was best documentary feature um, or best documentary sort. Um, they weren't really competitive at all. And then uh, after, um, I believe the La La Land Moonlight uh, Oscar, they actually stole Lisa Tayback, who was the publicist for A24 at the time, to become their full-time their full-time awards publicist. And Lisa Tayback is known in Hollywood as the Oscars whisperer. And it kind of shows, you know, obviously afterwards, you know, 2019, uh, they win uh, for Roma, uh, Best Director and Best International. 2020, Laura Dern, Merit Story, um, and, and American Factory. Um, and, you know, and in 2021, we have Mank uh, winning cinematography, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom getting costume design and hair and makeup, um, their first uh, nomination and win for Sword Live Action, um, and also My Octopus Teacher, of course, and animated, an animated sort, uh, Best uh, and, uh, If Anything Happens, I Love You. So, you know, clearly they are pushing hard. Like the number of nominations they have have exploded in the last couple of years they still have not gotten their best picture yet. And obviously they are probably as poised as any this year with Power of the Dog as the clear front runner. But again, people also said that about the Irishman and Mank um, in the past couple of years. So, you know, what do you think, uh, what do you make of Netflix's push to try to take uh, best picture in the past couple of years? And do you guys think this year is the year? Adele, let's start with you. I mean, I feel like, I feel like in normal times, Power of the Dog might not have even been on Netflix. Um, so I do think that's a really big uh, win for them. I, th- I think it's just a matter of time. And if it, there's ever going to be a year, it probably will be this year. Um, but that also being said, uh, I think, uh, didn't Amazon Prime technically get the first uh, Oscar win for a streaming service for... Um, uh, uh, the the Casey Affleck movie. Oh, uh, Manchester by the Sea. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think technically they were the first ones to you know win a quote unquote big award at the Oscars, and so I feel like maybe the Academy will give in to streaming, but I don't know if I feel like there's still a stigma around Netflix specifically. So maybe I don't know. Uh, not Apple TV, but you know. Amazon or uh, just some other streaming service. Netflix will get there eventually, but I, I don't know. I, I, I still feel like a lot of people just hear the words Netflix and just shut off. Yeah, it's strange. I, I think Apple TV is younger than those guys and they just hit the market with such a prestige. I 
I know a lot of that's on the Apple name, but a lot of it, I think, was the fact that Apple entered the whole streaming game. So they just automatically assumed anything they bring to the table was the next level type of thing, which is insane. Um, it's all perception and marketing. But <laughs> the people that not only deserve it most, but are overdue are Netflix. I mean, they started basically the whole platform of streaming and at least doing it successfully. Let's put it that way. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I think they're still kind of the bastard child because they're the guys that uh, cut, cut off all the blockbusters and, you know, any other <sighs> physical rentals. They did it a little bit themselves and then own the game. So I think there's a lot of issue being taken there because of revenue going to studios and they have just kind of blacklisted them. But I feel like if they're not getting it this year, they'll at least be the closest to doing so. Clearly we don't have any runner-ups for best picture or anything else, but if anything's going to play runner-up, it'll be power of the dog. I don't know what to, but um, I, I don't think it's deserved for best picture, but I think it has the, the biggest quote unquote look right now for best picture of what that would traditionally be what it has been before. And uh, I, I think there's a lot going for it where it's people that have either been critical darlings or darlings of the Academy and one before been nominated a lot are highly regarded are uh, just people that they can get draws in like Benedict for ratings that just read well. So it's got all that going for it. I do feel like it's their best play, the Academy's best play right now for ratings. And that's been such a huge issue, especially after last year, that I think if they can get more attention with things like Don't Look Up, because they know that's a huge draw, they'll actually care this year about giving Netflix more of a spotlight because they can benefit from it. And the Academy, ultimately, whatever rules they have, they'll throw those out the door to benefit themselves. <laughs> it's just what they do. Or they could give Best Picture nomination to No Way Home, of course. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, so, I mean, so, so my perspective is pretty interesting because I actually, you know, in addition to this Oscars Death Race podcast, I have a box office podcast every week where I go over the numbers of how much money movies make at the box office and why. And obviously, you know, I started it like a month before the pandemic, so I had to cover streaming for a good bit um, over the course of the pandemic. And I don't know, it's super interesting because on one hand, right, like Netflix of any studio, I think gives the most creative freedom to any creative. I mean, you know, Martin Scorsese, as you know, aside in his complaint about how you know Marvel movies are just entertain are like are just roller coasters and amusement parks for for the or for cinema and whatever. That aside, there is some there is some truth where the most creative people are saying you should go to Netflix to make the films you want to make because you're basically hands off unlimited, right? Um, you don't have any studio feedback like you know Sony or Warner Brothers or whatever, right? Um, so there's that. Um, on the other hand, right, Netflix themselves have actually said that they are planning on scaling down the number of productions that they are going to be making in the future um, and also that they are open to giving their films a slightly longer theatrical release window before putting it on Netflix. Um, because from, and this is my you know amateur layman's analysis, you know, I think there's just so much content out on Netflix that the issue is 
you know, there's buzz for a week when it's launched, it's in the top 10. And then by the next week, the drop off is immense. It's not there anymore. You kind of see that, like, that's what happened with Black Widow on Disney Plus, right? Like the theatrical revenue dropped off in the second week versus, you know, had it been in theaters, it would have had a sustained run kind of like Shang-Chi did, um, which is where the power of, you know, theatrical still lies. And again, my bias as a box office person comes coming in there. Um, but that said, Netflix, I think, is aiming for that where they want to have more cultural relevancy. And so they're going for that, you know, that. And so it's interesting that we say that, hey, they are the ones who are streaming first, but it's also interesting that they are wanting to maybe take a step back from inundating the market with just so much content that drowns out their own cannibalizing themselves and wanting to have let their films have more of a moment in theaters to have more cultural cachet what do you guys think Mm -hmm. of that oh i i agree i mean i definitely think netflix isn't necessarily short on cultural relevancy but they do self-cannibalize themselves and i mean i saw it even to an extent with tick tick boom i remember seeing it trending at like, you know, number two and three on uh, most watched thing on Netflix, the week it dropped, and then just immediately something else replaced it. And even in the conversation, it got replaced, if not by a Netflix movie, but by West Side Story. So just um, even though they don't, they do dominate, it just they, they disappear so quickly. I feel like it, this is a big business practice thing, a big marketing thing. And I want to speak more on their choices as a business and staying relevant. And I think they're, uh, I mean, they're definitely poised to be the top studio for a long time now. I think a lot of what they're doing is strategic uh, and, and good for them. They've been successful. They've made very good choices almost exclusively good choices in a lot of the big business moves they've made. I think what is at play here is they don't want to come off like a lot of companies right now reporting losses because of COVID. So they announce that they're scaling back because, you know, that looks better, right? Everyone assumes they have this focus they want to make, but they just don't really want to report as much loss. They want to make it look good. So they do that. And then they also are in the running right now basically to you know best picture lock and all these other things so they say you know what we'll play nice guy and we'll say all right in the future we're going to do more theatrical release and have more exclusives if they win best picture watch that go away so fast yeah and and one point that i wanted to respond to before we move on is is to apple for as far as apple tv goes my take is that you know i think that they have the money to throw around clearly they're apple um you know they they're funding martin scorsese's next like what 250 million dollar budget film um or, or whatever, right? And and I think that's I and I and you know they had Greyhound, um, they had R.I.P. Finch, which didn't get VFX shortlisted, right? Um, they Ugh. have they have Macbeth <laughs> and Coda this year, um, so they definitely I think yeah. I think their films are definitely I think in terms of as far as Oscar quality goes, I think they have the highest hit rate I think of their films just because they're more selective and they have higher quality, just that they don't have as much. Yeah, um, and with the amount of money they're throwing at everything and with their list of their production schedule upcoming, they're doing the exact opposite of what Netflix says they're going to do. But Apple's not being shy about it because, like you said, they're Apple. They don't need to be shy about what they're spending at all, and they know that people will consume their product. 
I think that's it then for this episode. Before we go, um, I know you guys are both involved with the Academy of Death Racers, and I wanted you guys on this week, you know, because the Academy of Death Racers Death Racers Fest Film Festival is starting um, as w- when this episode drops on on the eleventh, coming out this Friday. It starts on this Friday, the fourteenth. Um, you guys want to give a plug for the festival? Oh man, yeah, I am so excited. <laughs> I've been um, just so saturated in it. I looked at the schedule this morning and I cannot believe it's this coming week. So we have our inaugural film festival for the Academy of Death Racers. We are entirely virtual, which is uh, so much of a plus right now. But I feel like it should be really no matter what. I won't get into it too much because I uh, get very ranty about it. But I feel like there's a lot of revolution to be had with with film in a way that we're seeing with with things like music in the past several years and with nfts now where a lot of stuff is restricted by what companies are willing to buy and put out there i feel like there's a lot that filmmakers aren't even allowed to do let alone are held back when they're greenlit to do something so i think it's uh, excuse me i think it's very important to give a platform to people that wouldn't otherwise have it. And whether that be them being in a country that isn't the United States, because apparently we have to be the center of everything and it's gross, or if it be a marginalized group, you know, those people need to have a platform. Any artist deserves to have a platform and not be held back by anything, really. So we're happy to give a platform to any filmmakers, really, out there that have a voice, want to show what they can do, and we're just proud and happy to be part of it. So we're launching our virtual fest on the 14th through the 30th, and Adele can speak to our amazing blocks that she's put together. And I would also like to say that tickets are on sale now. You can even find us on Eventbrite, and our merch will be launching this week. We have some fun blocks coming up. Uh, I Am Not a Machine, The Working Class, uh, for art we live, artists and creativity. All I'm asking for is change, the fight to improve our world, here and now and us together, exploring the connections we make, and where uh, our last block, where I can be me, examining identity. Uh, and then we have a bunch of awards that are going to be voted on. Right now we have four competitive uh, awards. Uh, each winner will receive a cash prize of $125, for excellence in the following categories, uh, animated short film, documentary short film, live action short film, and film with an LGBTQ plus theme. And that's either for a short or a feature. And then there will also be a $100 prize for audience choice. And then uh, $50 for second place and uh, uh, $50 for second and third place. And there will also be some Q and A's and such there too. So in the coming days before the festival, we'll be adding in a couple of last-minute surprises. So keep your ear to ground for that and check our socials. We will also have some interactive events and some Q&A segments. All right. Ooh. Uh, and what are the uh, what socials are you guys on? We are on Reddit, Instagram, Twitter. We have our Discord community. And uh, you know what? We have a few other little sprinklings, like we're on Letterboxd is one. We're on YouTube, where we have our Deathies Festival from last year, our award show. So please check that out, because we have our second one coming up. 
Yeah, Woo! you can make sure you join the Discord, like I say every week. Uh, join the, the Academy branches, so we'll have some of our own uh, Academy uh, uh, Deathy Awards uh, that are not in the Oscars. Um, I also am lobbying for them to include a couple other just general categories, like Best Stunt Team, I think needs to be its own Oscar, but that, you know that's a whole other yes. conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's it, I think. Uh, thank you guys so much. I know we went a little bit longer than I anticipated. I, I mean, you, you invited us on and expected us to, and you know. Mm-hmm. We're the mouthiest, too. We're, yeah, we're the ones that keep I going. Should've, I should have known. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thanks so, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, really appreciate And yeah, definitely, again, listeners, make sure you check out the Academy of Death Races Festa, Fe- Film Festival. Um, again, all virtual. Uh, you can either buy a membership for AODR.net, or, which will get you a Film Fest Pass, or you can just buy a Film Fest Pass for just one of those blocks if money is a little bit tight. Um, yes, please come get our membership. It is worth it. Yeah, totally worth it. I'm on the Yaya, play the Yaya Ding Dong level. Um, okay, yeah, I think that's it. Thanks so much, guys, uh, and hope to catch you guys uh, in the Discord. Catch you there. Yeah, take care. Uh, Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Many thanks again to Alex and Adele. Really appreciate you guys coming on the show to talk about the Death Race. As they talked about at the end, the Academy of Death Racers Film Festival is starting up this weekend, and you can purchase your tickets now, either for the entire film festival or just for a single block, and the amount helps out. Uh, be sure to follow the Academy of Death Racers on all the social media, uh, linked in the show notes. I'll also include links to Alex and Adele's Letterbox accounts for you to follow as well. Now, the last one we talked about was Tick, Tick, Boom, my favorite of the four we talked about. But when planning out my episodes, I nearly put it on another episode, actually. Genre films, musical theater, science fiction, horror films. These so these types types of films generally don't do that well at the Oscars usually. But this year, we have a number of films that actually fit those categories. Tick, Tick, Boom, notwithstanding. Next week, we'll have my film buff of a friend from college, Alex Atienza, on to talk about some of these best picture contenders, namely West Side Story, Dune, Nightmare Alley, and The Scottish Play. That wraps up this episode of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Let me know how your Death Race is going on Twitter at OscarsDRaceCast or via email at OscarsDeathRacePodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your podcast series of choice, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and you can leave us a review there anything or even just share with a friend who loves movies any of that's super helpful if you want to directly financially contribute to the show you can do so on Patreon linked in the show notes also linked will be my own letterbox account under the username NinjaBoy where than I be sure to check out the Oscars Race and Oscars Death Race subreddits and the Oscars Death Race Discord as well as the community website both Academy of Death AODR.net the Academy of Death Racers and OscarsDeathRace.com where there's a tracking seat for you know people competing in the Death Race music provided is, is provided by Kevin MacLeod you can find his stuff at incompetech.filmmaster.io editing production by Ninsboy Media. That's it for this week. This has been Paulo of the Oscars Death Race Podcast. Until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all the Oscar nominees or die trying. Mm-hmm.